0: This is Alan Seaborn from Winning at Home. Welcome to In Progress, a podcast about faith, life, and how we grow. And in this episode, I want to talk about what it looks like to make a relationship thrive. I'm going to be talking specifically about a marriage relationship, but I really believe that this stuff applies no matter what sort of relationship we're talking about doesn't even have to be a romantic relationship but anybody whether it's a family member sibling parent friend coworker, whoever it is this is what it takes to make those relationships thrive now just like last episode i think i need to apologize again for my voice i'm hoping i'm kind of toward the end of this thing but i still feel that uh, gravelly kind of thickness in it. So sorry if that's annoying. Uh, but I want to just get going and talk about what it takes to make relationships thrive by looking at something, a psychologist and kind of a psychological researcher who some of you may be familiar with, named John Gottman, something that he really came up with or found through his studying and researching. And he came up with something that at the end of this episode, you're going to go, well, yeah, I I think I already kind of knew that. But I want to talk about it in a way that really hammers home why this is so important for relationships. And so around the, you know, 1950s, 1960s, and 70s, divorce in America began to become more and more of a common occurrence. And so as that was happening, there were a bunch of people that were studying the effects that divorce had on the couple who went through the divorce, had on the kids who their parents went through the divorce. And you can read books about the emotional and the financial and all these different aspects of how the impact played out of divorce on all the people that were involved. Now, Gottman and his team, they decided instead of looking at the after effects of divorce, they wanted to figure out what led up to what essentially, it's too simplistic of a way to think of it, but what caused divorce. And they said, okay, if we're going to do that, if we're going to look at what leads to divorce, we can't talk to divorced couples because we're not going to be able to watch along the way what happens. And so what they did is they met with a bunch of engaged or newly married couples and they talked with them. They just had regular conversations that if you're in a relationship, you've had these conversations with people. They asked them, you know, how did you meet? How did you propose? What's something in life you're looking forward to next? What's something that you've been struggling with lately as a couple? Just normal conversation stuff. But because they were doing research, they hooked up these couples that they were talking to and interviewing, And they were measuring things about how their bodies were reacting in these moments. So they were measuring the blood flow, the heart rate, and the sweat production of these couples as they were talking about their relationship. And once they got done with that, they said, okay, well, we don't really know anything about these couples yet because. They're either just married or they're not even married at this point. So we're going to follow up with each of those couples six years from now. And they did. They met up with the couples that they had interviewed and they found what we find in the relationships around us. Six years in, some of these couples were in a great spot. They were in healthy relationships and they loved and valued each other. They enjoyed being around each other. And then there were other couples who weren't in such a healthy relationship. Uh, Some of them were sort of that um, like cliche sitcom marriage where you can tell the two people don't really enjoy being around each other, but they put up with it because eh, maybe this is better than nothing. And then... Some of the relationships were worse than that. And some of them had already ended in divorce or were heading in that direction. And so what they did is they categorized which of these relationships six years later were in a healthy place and which were not in a healthy place or had ended. And these were scientists, researchers, not super creative people And so they called the healthy couples the masters, and they called the unhealthy couples the disasters. See what I'm saying, not super creative, but it's helpful way to make this distinction and talk about it in an easy way. So then they went back to these interviews, these conversations from six years before, and they said, we wonder if there's a similarity between the people who we've categorized as these healthy relationships, these master relationships, and the people who are on the other end of the spectrum, the disasters. And when they went back, they looked at the initial studying and research and testing and things that they had taken, and they found that there were some similarities. The disaster couples even though on the outside they looked exactly the same as all the other couples, they found that these were people who had high blood flow, elevated heart rates, and increased sweat production. And to me and you, I don't know if that means a ton. Maybe we could think about it and go, okay, yeah, that probably means this. But for them the researchers, they realized right away that means that these people are on high alert. They're essentially in fight-or-flight mode. Now, you probably remember fight-or-flight. That's something we learned about in school a long time ago. You see a bear or some other predatory animal out in the woods. You freeze for just a moment, and then you fight or you run away. This is in the moment when you realize that you're in danger, your body reacts this way. And so what they found is these couples, while they're sitting next to each other, outside they don't look different. They're having a normal conversation that all couples have, but inside, internally, they're ready at a moment's notice to attack or to be attacked. Now, uh, this isn't talking about a physical attack or be attacked, uh, although unfortunately that is a dynamic of some relationships. But this is talking about on an emotional, on a verbal level, people knew okay, being near this near this person means that I don't know what's going to happen next and I've got to keep my guard up all the time. Obviously, we know that that's not going to make for a very good relationship dynamic. But the researchers, they're like, okay, well, that's helpful, but that doesn't really get us where we need to get because that doesn't tell anybody, you know, okay, go out of here and don't be in fight or flight with your spouse. That's not helpful, right? So they dug deeper and they set up this little uh, observatory, I guess you could call it, at a bed and breakfast. And they, they told couples that they were doing this. They weren't spying on people who didn't know. And they just watched couples as they would go through their daily routines on a vacation or a little mini vacation. And so as couples were making and eating breakfast, as they were making their plans for the day, as they were having a cup of coffee and reading a newspaper, that's how you know this was done in the 80s, reading a newspaper. But as they did all this stuff, they were watching these couples. And what they found is over and over and over, this happened with all couples, all couples did something that they called making a bid for their spouse's attention. So they saw that these little bids for attention, they happened all the time throughout all days with all couples. And what this looks like is one of the spouse, let's say the husband's reading the paper and says to his wife, hey, there's something interesting. This This article in the paper says this and tries to start a conversation, whether a long or short conversation. That's what a bid for attention looks like. So as they're at this bed and breakfast, they watched one couple. The husband was an avid bird watcher. And as you can imagine, that wasn't probably a hobby that his wife shared, right? But he's out in this kind of wooded area for a bed and breakfast and he sees a bird that he doesn't normally see. So he tells his wife, hey, check this bird out. And maybe you can imagine starts to recite some facts about that bird or, or whatever it is. Okay, this doesn't happen with us, probably. I'm guessing there's not a lot of bird watchers that are listening to this episode. But we all have something that we're into that our spouse or the people around us, doesn't really care all that much about. And when we make these bids for attention, like I say, all couples did this, but they found that there was a big difference between the people who were in healthy, enjoyable relationships, the masters, and the people who weren't, the people who were tolerating each other, or the people who we're not even doing that very well. The disasters. They found that couples made a similar amount, I think, of bids for attention. I've As I'm saying that, I'm like, I don't know. I might be misremembering that. There might be a difference between the two. But the idea here is the same. They made bids for each other's attention. And there was a difference between the healthy and the unhealthy couples. Because when someone tries to share something like that with you, hey, there's a, this cool bird out the window, there's a few different ways you can respond. You can respond positively and say, hey, that's awesome, thanks for pointing that out, I'm glad you got to see that. You don't have to have some big long conversation, you don't have to ask, oh, what genus and species and da da da, You don't have to go into all that to have a positive response, but you just engage in some way. Then there's kind of the neutral response of just, oh, okay. Or kind of a blow-off response, but not quite, right? It's like, you can tell that I'm not really interested in this, but I'm not going to shut you down. And then there's the negative response, which is, hey, you know I don't really care about birds. Hey, you know I don't really care about that article you're trying to talk to me about. I'm not into that. You know that. Or they saw some couples where there was a total ignoring of this bid for attention. No verbal or nonverbal response, period. And then... You can imagine that there were moments where there was something nasty or negative or spiteful that was said, too. And obviously, we know that it's key that we respond in these moments in a positive way. But what they found as they watched couple after couple after couple, they found that of the masters, the healthy relationships, 87% of the time, when one spouse tried to make a bid for the other's attention, 87% of the time, they were met with a positive response. didn't have to be, like I say, a big, long conversation, but something. The disasters, on the other hand, only 33% of the time got a positive response. Now, I really don't need to spend time breaking down why this matters, right? We all immediately understand that if we were trying to share our lives with someone around us, even if it's stuff that's not a huge deal to us, but we're trying to bring them in to something that matters to us at least a little bit. If almost 90% of the time, we knew that we were gonna get some kind of positive response, like our comment mattered at least a little bit, that makes us want to keep sharing our lives. But on the other side, if we knew only one out of three times we're going to have a positive response from our spouse or our spouse is going to get a positive response from us, that makes people shut down, doesn't it? if I thought I was going to be met with, hey, you know I don't care about that, or total silence, I would just start to share less and less and less of myself because I would go, man, I know that they don't care, so why, why would I even talk about this? And so I want to tell you briefly about how this plays out for Annalise and I in our home. I I do a pretty good job of not bringing work home. You know, I work on stuff at the office and then there's sometimes if I have a speaking engagement or something like that, I'll be at home looking over my things on my laptop, but usually if I'm on my computer at home, that means I'm looking at basketball cards online or I'm looking at some uh, you know, forum talking about basketball cards or I'm checking stat. Obviously, you see I'm big into basketball, so probably I'm doing something basketball-related if I'm on my laptop at home. And what happens often is Annalise will be sitting by me on the couch or she'll be over at the table or wherever she's sitting. She'll be on her phone, and she's really big into uh, crafting and art and fashion and that kind of stuff, which isn't really my world. It's not something that is a big deal to me. And what she'll do is she'll be looking on Etsy or Pinterest or something like that. And I'm on my laptop. I'm doing my thing. She's on her phone doing her thing. And she'll say, hey, Alan, come take a look at this. She'll show me a picture that is a shirt, but she'll call it something else. I've found that To me, there are probably a hundred different things that fall in the category of shirt. But for her, there's a crazy amount of words to describe something I would call a shirt. You've got a duster and a cardigan and a pullover and a button-up and a blouse and a da-da-da, all this kind of stuff. But what you need to know, she shows me a picture of a shirt. She calls it something fancy, but it's a shirt. And I have the opportunity in that moment to say, hey, I'm looking at something that I'm actually interested in. Uh, You know, I don't care about shirts. Come on, let's, let's just keep doing our own separate things. Or if I remember, by the way, this isn't just gonna come naturally all the time. But if I remember that what she's doing. She's not holding up her phone and saying, hey, Alan, do you care about this shirt? She's holding up her phone and she's trying to share her life with me. And she's saying, hey, Alan, do you care about me? And I have the opportunity in that moment to close the lid on my laptop or even just turn my head and look toward her phone instead of looking at my screen, right? And saying something, doesn't have to be a big, long conversation, remember, but saying something like, yeah, I like that style. I think that would look great on you. Or even if I wanna engage positively, but I don't really like the shirt, I can say, yeah, I I see what you're saying. I'm not sure that's exactly my favorite style, but hey, if you like it, that's awesome. Because in those moments, she's sharing her life with me. Now, I could say, that's such a small thing, just a shirt, doesn't even matter. And the shirt part, you're right, the shirt part doesn't matter. But what she's doing is she's making, as Gottman and his team of researchers would say, a bid for my attention. And I have the opportunity to encourage her to continue to share her life with me. Or I have a choice to just kind of shut that down because I don't really care. But I don't want you to think that this is a one-way street. You know, I'm looking at something I'm interested in and she is trying to show me something that I don't really care about because poor Annalise... I I am obviously you've, if you listen to more than a few episodes, you know, I'm a huge NBA fan and Annalise knows so much more about basketball than she would ever want to know in her entire life. Um, she knows when, when I am confused or surprised by a big contract that somebody signed, she hears about it. I'm like, what they got four years, 90 million for him. No way. That's crazy when somebody scores 35 points that I didn't expect, I'm like, wow, this was a big night from this guy. And she's going, oh, okay, well, what would be like a normal night? (laughs) How many points would they normally score? Because she doesn't have the context for this stuff. This is my world. And she, you know, in the last maybe, I don't know, 10 or 15 years, the NBA has become much more international. So they're doing a better job at doing camps um, across the world and encouraging young basketball players and helping develop them and all that. And so there are a bunch of guys in the league who have names that are tough to pronounce. And I'll pause it and I'll ask her, who is that right there? And if you follow basketball, you'll know... That this is impressive. She can pronounce Giannis Attentacumpo better than most of the NBA announcers. She, and I know she doesn't care about Giannis Attentacumpo, but she cares about me. And it's a stupid thing even. I, I feel weird making this connection that her knowing this kind of stuff makes me feel loved. But it sure does. Because I know that she's saying, Alan, you're trying to share life with me. And you know what? When you do that, I'm not going to blow you off. I'm not going to make you feel ridiculous for caring about what you care about. I'm going to share your interest on some level, even though it's not something that's a big deal to me. I'm going to make you know that even though I might not care about that stuff, I care about you. And this plays out all day, every day, in all of our relationships, right? And like I say, this was a study about marriage, and obviously it's the most, I don't know about true, I don't know the word to say there, it's the most easily applicable to marriage. That's where we're going to see the biggest impact because this is our closest relationship. But this stuff is also true in other relationships. If we're shutting people down, if we're ignoring them, if it's clear that we don't have any interest in having this conversation with this person at this time, well, what that's going to do is that's going to make them close up and just stop sharing so much of their lives with us. But if we show interest, even in a small way, if we engage and say, yeah, that's not really my thing, but tell me a little bit about that. Relationships come to life around us. And we're going to have the opportunity today. Unless you're listening to this, like as you're drifting off to sleep in bed, you're gonna have the opportunity. Someone in your life, whether it's a spouse, a child, a parent, a friend, a coworker, a neighbor, somebody is gonna make a bid for your attention. Somebody is gonna ask you in different words than this, hey, do you care about me? And keeping in mind, What Gottman and his team found as they analyzed relationship after relationship with couple after couple, when we give a response that makes the other person feel heard and cared about, it brings those relationships to life in a way that really, it's hard to imagine something else that would do it on that same level. So let's go and let's practice that. We're going to get the most opportunities to practice with our husbands and with our wives. And we're going to get a chance to let them know they matter to us in these small, seemingly insignificant moments. And it's going to bring those relationships more and more alive.